Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, obviously, it's been a very challenging week here in Israel. It started um, really um, last weekend. On Friday nights, there was the news, uh, which people who keep Shabbat didn't even receive until Saturday night, that uh, there was a terrorist attack in the heart of Jerusalem uh, outside a synagogue uh, with people coming and going uh, to prayers. Um, and they were gunned down, gunned down. Uh, seven people in all were killed. Um, and then the next day, there was a shooting attack um, just outside the old city, near David. <coughs> at least two people were critically injured. Apparently, one, at least one of them, who was an off-duty soldier who shot back, is in quite a critical stage. Um, but the most remarkable thing about the uh, the second shooting was it was perpetrated by a 13 year old Palestinian um, who himself was wounded um, and has been taken to hospital. We're not quite sure of the condition of the 13 year old, but it really shows, you know, we're told many, many times that Israel targets uh, or shoots or kills uh, youths or children when sometimes they're as old as 16 or 17 and they're trained and they have guns and they're even members of terrorist organizations. So the next time you hear about that, just keep in mind that uh, it was a 13-year-old who'd been indoctrinated. Uh, they found his, uh, his school book and it was full of uh, pleas to be a martyr, which basically means be, uh, being killed during a terrorist uh, activity uh, and all these sort of things. And it just shows the level in, of indoctrination that a 13-year-old can get a gun and can just decide uh, on a Saturday to just shoot uh, Jews, religious Jews, uh, who are clearly uh, trying to enjoy the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that, that's how the sort of weekend uh, began. Um, but the most interesting, you know, uh, or what many people, let's say, supporters and opponents of this government wait to see what the reaction was. You know, we've been told many, many times that this is the most right wing, the most hawkish government in the history of the state of Israel on paper. It certainly is. Um, but the reaction was uh, quite interesting. First of all, you had uh, Itamar Ben-Gvi, himself a religious Jew, um, who is considered the most hawkish element of uh, this government, who, even though he's a religious Jew, uh, as the national security minister, he was on the scene even during Shabbat. Uh, interestingly, he uh, placed or tried to divert some attention towards the justice system by claiming that they put um, an application to immediately seal off the room of the terrorists uh, involved in those attacks already in the hours afterwards. Um, usually there, there, is a, there has been a big debate, let's say for decades, what you can do to stop terrorist attacks. And there was an idea quite a number of years ago that one of the reactions can be is to demolish the home of a terrorist, uh, which there are many people in the security 
uh, echelons who are for and against. Some say it does nothing to stop the attack. Others say it actually does because we've seen and there is uh, evidence that families will stop members of uh, 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 will stop members of their family from perpetrating terrorist attacks because uh, their house and maybe some of their rights and benefits will be uh, stopped as a result. Um, but the first stage towards demolition is at least sealing off um, the house or the room or the area that the terrorist lives in. And that's what Itamar Ben-Gvir claimed that he put in straight away. And the attorney general, he claimed it's not quick enough to give the OK. And there was a big back and forth. But what it did do is it returned attention to the judicial system because that is and remains a big bugbear of this right wing government. So that's where he decided to, to throw the attention. Interestingly, his partner, at least during the elections, um, uh, Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party, uh, was a little bit more honest, let's say, a little bit more open about it. And he said, this is a big test for us. You know, we have to react accordingly. And on Sunday, there was a cabinet meeting where uh, some various steps or measures uh, were declared um, to try and prevent uh, uh, these sort of attacks. One of them was to immediately seal up uh, the, the terrorist homes, to allow more Israelis to carry guns, um, to build more settlements, which uh, obviously was considered controversial by the left. Um, what were some of the others? I'm, I'm trying to think. Just take a, take a harsher um, steps towards the terrorist organizations. But what uh, Netanyahu certainly was cognizant of, and certainly we saw later in the week why is the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in town, and um, Blinken is the highest level American uh, official who who has arrived in Israel since the swearing in of this new government. And uh, as we've seen many times before, Netanyahu himself has been caught up in it. The last thing that Netanyahu wanted was to. Uh, get caught up in a diplomatic incident, do something which could uh, taint, let's say, the visit of Blinken. Uh, we, we go back to that time where uh, then Vice President Biden came to town, and just as he was in Jerusalem, um, the Interior Ministry uh, decided to release the details of new settlements, which was considered a big embarrassment. At the time, for, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave Netanyahu an hour lecture Obama, then President Obama also, uh, you know, uh, came into the picture. And since then, Netanyahu has been extremely careful not to do anything ahead of these high level American visits, especially um, that could embarrass. Um, but just as importantly, sideline what he wants very much to get across to the Americans, because as we know, Netanyahu is laser focused on the Iranian issue. For him, the, meet, uh, the meeting with Secretary Blinken, for him, the number one agenda is and always will be Iran. Um, but it's clear that uh, Secretary Blinken has other things on his mind. Um, the issue with the, the Palestinians, I don't think anyone is in any, um, you know, anyone really thinks that uh, diplomatic talks could get going, but there is a belief at least that neither side should take uh, steps uh, unilateral steps against the other. Now, interestingly enough, the Palestinians, the week before, after Israel went into Jenin and took out some uh, terrorists uh, belonging to, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, according to Israel, who are about to uh, themselves perpetrate an attack, 
Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, basically said he is ending all security coordination with Israel. Interestingly enough, senior Palestinian officials told Secretary Blinken that not all security coordination is actually being cancelled and there, it, it still goes on in emergency circumstances and at certain levels. So it's clear that what the Palestinians say uh, openly and in threats don't necessarily align. Um, there will always be that level of coordination, regardless of what the relationship between uh, Israel and the Palestinians, quite simply because it serves both interests. It serves Israel because obviously the Palestinians um, can help uh, with security, but also don't forget these are largely against organizations which threaten Abu Mazen's rule. Um, and uh, so, you know, these things are not necessarily because the Palestinians love Israel and want to keep Israeli safe, but it certainly uh, helps them uh, in their um, interests as well. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Netanyahu is going on a, his first uh, big uh, visit of his uh, latest term, where he's going to be uh, traveling to France and meeting with President Macron, etc., uh, etc. Et so again, that's another um uh you know date in the calendar which again Netanyahu will be very very aware that he doesn't want uh too much to be uh seen as taking steps and basically getting a lecture especially from a senior European leader about some of the steps that Israel may be taking whether it's uh, building settlements or taking down um uh, Palestinian uh, structures which we'll talk about in a minute uh so again a lot of a, a lot of diplomatic activity around a time of heightened uh, anxiety around uh, terrorism, etc. There was talk earlier in the week after these attacks. Again, that first attack was the most bloody uh, uh, single attack in many, many years. And there was a lot of outrage and there was a lot of talk of maybe Operation Defensive Shield, that operation at the beginning of the 2000s, um, led by uh, then Prime Minister uh, Ariel Sharon, which really did root out terror in the West Bank, really did push back the terrorist organizations for many, many years. Um, and there is uh, talk that there may need to be a defensive shield too, which is going far, far further than any Israeli uh, operation in the West Bank in Judea Samaria for almost two decades. Um, because there, there's a feeling that A, there are more and more terrorist organizations sprouting out. And also because it took, uh, you know, it took, it was over two decades ago that there is a younger leadership which doesn't remember how hard the idea of hit them in those years, in those, I should say, weeks of Operation Defensive Shield. So perhaps there's a need to remind them and to root out terrorism because um, there seems to be a heightened sense of insecurity. And especially, as I said, with some of the members of this government, calling for a tougher uh, stance against terrorism. It wouldn't surprise me if, God forbid, there are more similar terrorist attacks, then there could be a launching of something like that. The other major issue in this arena is, again, the issue of Khan al-Akhmar. We've talked about this many times in the past. Basically, just to go over it very briefly again, Khan al-Akhmar is a very small uh, Bedouin encampment. There are no permanent structures there. We're talking about tents, shacks, etc., etc., um, which is on a very strategic parcel of land on the way to Maladumim. Maladumim is considered very important because both sides um, need it for what they um, state is contiguity, uh, uh, you know, conti uh, territorial contiguity, 
if there's going to be a Palestinian state, they believe that um, Maladumim is too much into the West Bank for it to remain. Uh, the Israelis say they need it to protect uh, the sort of Jerusalem envelope. So it's long been a fight, and this is on the way to. This is basically a very small encampment, as I said, run by uh, one uh, Bedouin uh, clan. There were talks and negotiations a number of years ago, but the Palestinian Authority got in touch with the residents there and made sure that they did not compromise. There was talk of literally moving them uh, 50 meters across the road where it would be less of a problem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, a right-wing uh, organization, Regavim, petitioned the Supreme Court uh, to uh, demand that the government remove Khan al-Ahmar because they claimed it had been built illegally, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the, High Court, the Supreme Court actually did rule uh, in favor of Regovim and demand and said that the government has full permission to uh, demolish Khan al Ahmad. It was built illegally, it's a danger, it's built uh, on land it shouldn't be, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So the government was given the green light by the judicial system to do so, but every single government, Netanyahu government, then the Bennett Lapid government, and now again the Netanyahu government has put it off once again. And again, we are talking about a right-wing uh, uh, government which they showed tonight in the news, every single member of this government, from Netanyahu, from Ben Gvir, to Smotrich, to everybody, were all on record as saying it's a disgrace, you know, when they're in the opposition, it's a disgrace that this issue was put off. As soon as we get into power, that's the first thing we're going to be doing. Uh, there's going to be no more shows. We're going to act, et cetera, et cetera. Well, again, now they're in office and Khan uh, al-Ahmar, uh, they basically applied to the Supreme Court for another stay of execution. They've asked for another four months to, uh, to, to deal with the issue. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes down because Khan al-Ahmar, while it is geographically relatively insignificant, it wouldn't take that long to demolish it. As I said, there are no permanent structures there. There's a bunch of tents and a few shacks. Um, it has become a major, major symbol uh, in Israeli politics. Um, going back to one of the issues which Netanyahu certainly would prefer to be off the agenda, it was quite clearly on the agenda, even during talks with Secretary Blinken, during um, uh, public remarks in a press conference, even uh, Secretary Blinken uh, alluded to them, and that is, of course, the judicial reform. Now, Secretary Blinken clearly wanted to mention it to show that it was on his mind to create the debate, even met with um, civil society leaders, and again, it was brought up this uh, judicial reform because I'm sure he's been hearing about it from many quarters, and it's something which Netanyahu would hope would uh, would not reach the diplomatic uh, arena, but it clearly has, and that was shown during uh, the time that Secretary Blinken was here. Uh, however, the issue is not going away. In the Knesset, is moving uh, you know forward at a fairly uh, brisk pace, there are three major figures involved, and this is, I think, the most important at the moment. There's Netanyahu, there's Levine, uh, Justice Minister Yorav Levine, and there is uh, Knesset Constitutional and, and Law Com uh, Committee Chairman Simcha Waltman, and Simcha Waltman is definitely the, the most maximalist on this issue. He wants the most severe version of reform, and he is in charge of the relevant committee in the Knesset to make sure that the legislation is going forward. The Justice Minister, Yerov Levine, wants something a little bit more moderate. Most Israelis probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two, 
laws as they stand now, but there are significant differences. I was in the Knesset this week and spoke with some of the people that are dealing with some of these laws, and they pointed out uh, the differences which may not seem uh, massive, but they are significant. For example, whether uh, uh, you know uh, the, a, a judicial bench can override a, a law, how much of a majority is needed. Uh, Simcha Rodman's basically allows even one just Supreme Court uh, justice to dissent, and that would mean that they could not override, whereas Levine's would allow three, uh, which is, you know, a little bit more difficult to attain, and there are various others. Netanyahu would certainly like to compromise on this um, uh, subject, and he has stated again and again, especially in international media, how he believes uh, that there can be some compromise, but the opposition are not even coming to the table or presenting an alternate uh, view on this, which to a certain extent is true, and we talked about that last week, and neither side are, are coming down. But at the end of the day, a lot of it's being taken out of Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's hands because Yerov Levine and Simcha Rotman in particular are just moving ahead very, very quickly, and it doesn't seem like anything is stopping Simcha Rotman, even the legal advisor to his particular uh, uh, committee has said that if such a law would be passed, it could only come into fruition in the next Knesset because you can't change the rules of the game in the middle of the Knesset. That was an advisory opinion. It's certainly not binding, um, but he was uh, basically uh, given, you know, sort of proverbial slapdown by the, the uh, committee uh, chairman for saying that. Finally, Netanyahu's got another uh, problem in his hands, another headache, and that is, again, he's got at least two uh, probably more rebels within his own Likud party who have now threatened that they may vote against the government on very important upcoming legislation. The most important being the idea or the law that would allow Arya Derry to serve, to return to the government, to return to his ministries. Remember, he was interior and health minister and he resigned last week. They're now trying to pass a law that would override the law or change or amend the law that means that someone who was indicted or, or took a plea bargain would not be able to sit in the cabinet. That was the ruling of the Supreme uh, Court. And, uh, and Netanyahu was forced to fire Derry. They tried to pass a law. Um, uh, people like Dudi Amsalem, uh, Danny Danon, and apparently others have said that they will not vote for the Derry law, which is a very important law, as one can imagine, if their particular positions uh, which at the moment are outside of the government, are not seen to. And one can imagine in a government where you only have a 64 majority, if you have four rebels, uh, it could become very, very difficult uh, to pass this law. Other objections to this uh, particular law, the so-called dairy law, are from the religious Zionist camp, uh, the who believe that really trying to bulldoze this particular law will give ammunition to the judicial system, which has long seen part, at least in part, this judicial reform as having to do very much with uh, personal challenges, perhaps Derry's, more importantly, perhaps Prime Minister Netanyahu's. Uh, there is a claim that uh, Netanyahu only became interested in judicial reform when he himself uh, started uh, to be looked into and then subsequently indicted and now under trial for three uh, criminal uh, charges against him and uh, basically trying to uh, put the first override there specifically 
for Ariadere would give ammunition to those who say that this whole judicial reform is personally based and would really spoil the greater, as they would put it, the greater judicial reform and the overrides which they would like themselves to put into place. So a lot of headaches for Netanyahu in this week, as, as there has been uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, as I said, he's going to France uh, tomorrow. Again, for him, the number one issue will be uh, Iran. Don't forget, France is a member of the Security Council, a member of the P5, uh, P5 plus one. Um, and uh, a very important player, especially with what's going on uh, in Iran. So while he will want the focus to be on Iran, he will have a lot of headaches with the Palestinian issue in the background, the judicial reform issue in the background, and not least from rebel members of his own party. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. All right, thank you so much. The first question is from Kerry Hillebrand. Yeah, okay. Uh, why can't or won't Israel be more proactive in publicizing the horrid indoctrination that Palestinian school children receive, idolizing terrorism and extolling the glories of martyrdom? Well, uh, simply put it, it, it is and it has been. I was in the Knesset this week where this issue was specifically brought up in a forum with the Minister of Diaspora Affairs and several NGOs, uh, for example, brought up uh, how they have asked foreign governments, specifically European governments, why they are funding um, incitement in education, why they're not bringing up the issue of the pay for slay uh, program that the Palestinians fund, etc., etc. And they basically said that they are ignored. And Israel brings these issues up time and time again, and quite simply, they're fobbed off. There has been a certain amount of success in preventing some of the money. Some um, countries, I can't remember which one, there was one I think in Scandinavia last year that decided to cut funding for uh, parts of the education system until incitement was um, gotten rid of. Um, so there, the money isn't flowing as much as it has in the past, and that's partly due to Israel's uh, work in this field. So. It's, it's not to say that Israel hasn't been uh, speaking strongly about this. Sometimes they, they get little victories, as I said, when some countries decide to either pull their funding completely or put some strings, or they claim that they put strings, but at the end of the day, um, you know, they're basically ignoring the incitement because it not only hasn't gone away, sometimes it's actually got even worse. Thank you. Eric asks, the left-wing people in Congress claim the Israeli incursions in Jenin do not prevent further terrorist operations in Israel. Is there any way Netanyahu can prove that it does? Well, I mean, you know, that's a really uh, subjective call. Um, Israel isn't about to, it, it will share certain information with certain allies, but it's not going to release publicly why it you know, uh, undertakes any operation. A lot of it is sensitive. A lot of it is intelligence-based. Some of it will be as a result of collaboration with certain Palestinian individuals. Uh, they don't want to give away their sources of intelligence, just as the Americans wouldn't want to give away any of their sources of intelligence for any operations, counter-terrorism operations it does around the world. So, you know, it's not going to go public with these. Um, but again, you know, you just look at the list of people who were killed in, uh, in that particular operation and all but one were senior members of terrorist organizations. And that wasn't 
Israel's suggestion. That was the terrorist organizations who took ownership of their own people. You know, the interesting thing is that sometimes, you know, uh, when international media organizations show some of these people killed, they'll be sweet looking people in civilian clothes. But then when the Palestinian official media channels present them, they'll be in full army fatigues with M16s thrown over their back with grenades in their hands, you know, with um, with saying, you know, I, I want to die a martyr, et cetera, et cetera. So these are not pleasant individuals. They're not bystanders. As I said, there was, I think, out of the 11 individuals who were killed, I think there was one person who wasn't involved in a, in a terrorist organization, unfortunately, because when you're forced to go into uh, civilian areas, and that's what the terrorist organizations want. It's almost impossible to have a seamless um, operation. But the fact that 95% or whatever it is, 90, 90% of the people who were killed were senior members of terrorist organization. And Israel said, these are people who are about to perpetrate an attack. And don't forget, a few days later, we did see an attack where someone shot up a synagogue and seven people were killed. I think there's very little leg to stand on by anyone who says that these operations are not necessary. Thank you. Alexis Griller is asking about uh, the recent drone attack in Iran, which happened at a very delicate and difficult time given the Russia-Ukraine situation uh, with very little damage done. Why did the Israelis go in at this point? To test Iranian defenses, to inflict damage, to destroy munitions buildings? I should say that Israel hasn't taken official responsibility for that attack. There has been hints and there has been leaks, et cetera, et cetera. And according to uh, foreign intelligence officials, there was quite a lot of damage done. The Iranians are the ones who said that there was little damage done, but they've said that in the past. They said a little bit of the roof was damaged. And clearly, um, some people who took social media uh, videos showed that there was a lot more damage than that. There were you know, several explosions. Um, and um, again, you know, in, intellig global intelligence agencies are saying it was quite a successful attack um, and quite a, you know, quite a daring attack against, uh, um, you know, Iran. So it, th there's a lot of reasons there. The, it seems like the, the West, uh, the Americans and Europeans are, are really impatient with Iran. Uh, they do not see any path back to negotiations for a turn to the JCPOA at this point. So probably Israel has seen this as an opportunity. If there's no negotiations on the horizon, if diplomacy at this point, by all accounts, by all the major players has failed, um, then this is an opportunity for Israel to, or those you know, responsible for the attack, to try and push back uh, on Iran's weapons program, on its uh, uh, military, et cetera, et cetera. So th there's quite a lot to be gained there especially considering uh, Iran's role, destabilizing role in the uh, Russian uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, we saw the Ukrainians come out and basically they were quite overjoyed by the fact that Iran, which is supplying Russia with these attack drones, itself was the subject of an attack by attack drones. So um, there, there was quite a lot uh, to be gained from from these type of attacks. And it seemed like they did a lot more damage than the Iranians like to uh, let on at this point. So going into these meetings uh, uh, with the Europeans and, and the US, do you think Netanyahu can keep the focus on Iran this time? I know we, there's been some issues with that in the past. 
Uh, definitely Iran will be a focus. For Netanyahu, it will always be more of a focus than it will be for his interlocutors because they have a whole shopping list of things that they want to bring up, especially, you know, take the, the US, you know, it, it's, it's a close relationship between the US, but let's be honest, Israel is the junior partner, you know, there's, there's, there's no doubt in that, and that's the reality, so uh, America will always come and with a variety of criticisms and demands, whether it's on the Palestinian issue, whether it's even, you know, I doubt there'll be too many open demands uh, on the judicial form or internal issues, because there is always that uh, diplomatic caveat that you don't get involved with uh, a friend's internal issues. But there will, it will certainly be a very implicit uh, hint that, you know, we expect A, B and C. And Netanyahu, who's a seasoned diplomat, seasoned politician, will have understood it, especially with uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, public remarks, as I said, um, implicitly, some may even argue explicitly mentioning uh, what's going on in Israel with the judicial reform issue uh, and what his opponents would say is a threat to democracy. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in these meetings, there are a lot of issues which are brought up. For Israel, it's Iran, Iran, Iran. Nothing else really matters on the same level. Obviously, there's always bilateral relations and, you know, with countries with like the US and France, there's a lot to talk about there. But for Netanyahu's laser focused on Iran, that will be the top line of uh, any diplomatic meetings. But with, with someone like President Macron, again, there may be a difference to what will be said publicly and what would be said privately. But of course, uh, Iran will not have the same level of focus that it will from the Israeli leadership. All right. Well, thank you so much. With that, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern with Dexter Van Zyl discussing a Muhammad uh, picture and Hamline's crisis. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.